listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. So, um, I forgot to ask somebody to read the scripture. So, good morning. My name is Pastor Kevin, and I serve here as General Flunky number one. And uh, today I'll be reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter number 19, verses 28 through 48. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he knew, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to just come around your word. We thank you for the time that we've been able to share in song and praise and worship. God, we thank you for these graduates. We thank you for the lives that, that they represent, the future, the potential in which they hold. God, I pray that, uh, that, that early on they will remember um, the name of the Lord their God, that they will set their hearts and minds on him and that they will follow him, God, relentlessly. 
God, I ask that you would draw these four young, uh, young adults and, and those that we'll celebrate on Wednesday night, that you would draw them close to yourself. The entire world is seeking to, to pull them in any and every direction away from the principles of your word. God, they're trying to to pull them away from the things that are right and are true. Those things that you have laid out for us that will lead to our flourishing, even though that will be through the path of suffering. I pray that you will help them to see the glory that is on the other side of the temporary suffering and the opportunity that they have to represent your son. I pray that you'll give them boldness to do just that wherever you lead them. And whatever field that you plant them in, God, I pray that you will um, help them to remain focused. And when they fall away, and no doubt they will go through those valleys, those dark nights of the soul, that you will draw them gently back to yourself. So, God, that they may be able to praise you for what you have done. And, God, so that their story might be reflective of your grace. Now, Father, we ask that you'll help us as we look to your word, as we seek to understand the, the next movements of your son and the story that, that you spoke through Luke. We ask that we will walk away having not only understood, but having uh, decided that we would apply this to our lives directly and immediately. We love you and we trust you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Jesus has come to the end of his journey from Galilee. He has done miracles aplenty. He has spoken words that have confounded those that have listened. Some of the things that Jesus said excited the hearers. They heard things that they had never heard in the synagogues before. They heard things from Jesus' mouth that they had never heard from the most religious and those most devout in the following of the laws given through Moses. Some were excited, some were thrilled, many were confused. But a few, a growing number, were adamant that this man had to go. This man had to be removed so that his words and his works would not thwart the relationship that had been established through leaders of Israel and the empire of Rome. Jesus knew that Jerusalem was a hotbed. Jesus knew that it was about to be a boiling point in the nation. But he had already said, as Luke recorded in chapter number 9, that he had set his gaze on that city where he would be rejected, he would be betrayed, he would be crucified. But he had already told his disciples that on the third day he would rise again. The purpose of his coming lay in Jerusalem. The reason that he was here was just a few miles away. In the city that had been named by the Lord. The city on which he would put his name across as the sovereign of this people. This was going to be the place where angry mobs would rule the day. And yet when Jesus had finished all of the sayings that were intended for him to say. He made his turn, and into the city he went. From outside of Jerusalem, from Bethany, where you and I know that his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, lived. That city where Jesus had called Lazarus forth from the dead. That place that he will go back to, as we read in the Gospel of John. 
He comes from Bethany through Bethpage, just a, a, a few hundred yards away. And having a colt brought to him, they set him on top and into Jerusalem he rides. I'm going to argue that what we see in this scene is a humble presentation. A humble presentation of, of, of who we would know to be the king of the universe. The one who spoke all things into existence. If there ever was a one who could come in with pomp and circumstance, it would be the king of the universe. Many of you watch Disney movies because you have children. It made me think about the the scene where Aladdin, transformed by the genie, comes into the city with singing elephants. I don't know how that worked. But that would be the kind of entrance that you would imagine. In fact, it was the kind of entrance that the Jews were expecting from their Messiah. One that would rival any of the Roman generals who had ever marched into cities. And believe you me, these people had seen human authorities on war horses with soldiers and all of the bounty and slaves that had been captured come through the land. No doubt they had seen that time and time again as a demonstration of power and dominance That's what they were expecting to see their king come riding in on the war horse, mounted and ready to squash every aspect of oppression. But that's not what they saw this day. This day, the one who had no place to lay his head sent two of his disciples. Mark gives a really precise definition in his gospel of where these disciples went to get this particular animal for Jesus to use. So there are a lot of that think that probably Peter was one, since Mark, we think, is writing on behalf of Peter. If Peter was one, then probably John was the other. But in our account and in the others, we don't know. We just know two disciples were told to go to a very specific place in the city through the town they were going through and untie somebody else's property. It would be synonymous to him saying, what I want you to do is I want you to go down the road and and I want you to take a right when you get up here and then go to the third house. You're going to find a car parked on the side of the road. The keys are in it. Bring it here. No doubt they looked at Jesus. So you're telling us to go steal? No. I'm telling you to go get something that is prepared for me. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing stealing my donkey? You're to simply say, the Lord has need of it. And they will allow you to take. Jesus demonstrating his, uh, his identity as Messiah, as King, as, as Lord, knowing what would be prepared. And they found it just as he had said. They brought it to him. They put him on the back of this colt that Matthew says had never been ridden. I don't know if you've spent any time on the farm. Maybe you've been around horses. I've spent a day or two around horses in my teenage years. I know that unless a horse is fully aware of the riding process having gone through a, a, a procedure over time of what is called breaking the horse, then the horse is not real interested in you being on its back. 
The same would be true of a donkey. You, you wouldn't just jump on the back of one of these animals because number one, they don't know what to expect. And number two, they're way stronger than you are. What is Jesus doing? Why would he choose to get on the back of an animal that had never been broken? I'm going to tell you what I think. What I think is that in Genesis chapter number 1, verse number 26, the scripture says that God made man in his own image. In his own image, he created them, male and female. And then he said, the man will have dominion. Over the animals of the land, over the birds of the air, over the fish in the sea. It was God's design that we not be afraid of animals. I had a boy this week, we were going to Youth for Christ, and I pulled up, and they were getting out of the van, and, and all of a sudden, this one little boy got out of the van, and then he jumped up on my truck on the back. Well, I got one of those tonneau covers that's not strong enough to hold a child. And I'm going, buddy, get down. What are you doing? And he goes, that. And he points to a chihuahua looking thing <laughs> coming down the road. I'm like, dude, you're five, ten times the size of the, I know that chihuahua thinks that it's 500 pounds and 10 foot tall, but it ain't. Even if it gets a hold of you, it's not going to do anything to you. Just put him into the next yard. <laughs> but that child was afraid of that dog. That's not the way God designed. He not designed me to be as afraid as I am of snakes. That wasn't his design. We were to have dominion over them. But what broke that apart? The curse. Sin. Because of disobedience, all that God had intended was turned upside down. But what do we see here? We see Jesus bringing a cult that from his earthly ministry, we must assume, had never interacted with Jesus. One that had never been ridden and one that was being taken away from its mama. And brought to him having cloaks laid on top and Jesus sitting on top. What I think is happening here is for the world to see that what God intended for man to have dominion is being witnessed right there in the God-man. Fulfilling what God had always intended. And I can just imagine that as he got on the top of that colt's back, that that particular animal just knew there was nothing to be afraid of. Just knew there was nothing for which to pitch a fit. Jesus climbs on the back of this donkey to come into the city that he knows is a hotbed. He knows is the place that is going to ultimately reject him. There's another reason why Jesus gets on the back of this particular donkey. And it's a prophecy we find in Zechariah chapter number 9, verse number 9. Where the prophet, speaking about the coming of the king, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and he has salvation with him. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They were expecting a military leader to come in with all of the visual representations of power and authority, both of which he had in abundance. But if they'd been reading their Bible, 
these religious authorities who had already made up their mind about Jesus would have recognized that's not how Messiah is coming. He's coming humble. He's coming on an animal that is the symbol of peace. He's coming to the city and he's going to present himself unquestionably as Messiah. He's filling, fulfilling the scripture. He's coming through the hillsides. He's riding, going toward Jerusalem. And just so that your mind can kind of grasp what he probably was seeing, this was Passover season. This was the ultimate feast season of the year where many would have come from miles and miles around just to be in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Certainly all of the homes would have been filled with relatives and those willing to pay in order to stay in extra rooms when they were available. Those who had no place to stay would have been uh, uh, erecting temporary campsites all over the hillside surrounding Jerusalem. One particular historian said that on the basis of Josephus, who was writing about that time, Josephus said over 275,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover season in the year that Jesus was in town. And if you take that round number and you say, well, probably about 10 people per animal, given the family size number, some more, some less. If we round that off, that could be somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.7 million people in and around Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't going into the city. Jesus was going into the midst of over half of the population of all of Judea and Galilee. It would be fair to say that more than a sampling of the nation was present, but an overwhelming majority of the people were there. Crowding in and around that city. Crowding the roads so that it's tent after tent after tent after tent as far as you can see. And Jesus is riding on the back of a donkey with his disciples in tow. And the buzz begins to happen. It's it's Jesus. I think it's Jesus. I think it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the people begin to come out. The people begin to wonder what's going on. And as they recognize, this is him, no doubt, somebody went, Zechariah, 9-9, but they didn't have verse numbers. They were talking about to scroll. Zechariah, the prophet on the follow. You think it's him? I've heard about miracles. I've seen some miracles. I am a miracle. I've heard. Maybe this is him. And they come out and begin to shout. Now, why Luke didn't tell us this, I don't know. But Matthew, Mark, and John each say that they cried out, Hosanna, which simply means help or save us. As a word of praise, Hosanna, blessed is the king who's coming in the name of the Lord. Quotation from Psalm chapter 118 verses 26. You see the crowds We're beginning to believe that maybe this is the one. And they're laying palm branches and they're spreading their cloaks on the ground so that the animal could walk across out of reverence and respect. It's getting getting feverish, this celebration. And they're hearing 
The crowds and they're multiplying. What's happening? And you know how the buzz. And it's like a celebrity or even greater coming into town. As they praise, as they cry out, the Pharisees that are walking along the way with him, looking for an opportunity to peg some kind of negative press on him, got their little scroll notebooks out. They're they're waiting to, to, to quote him on something. We're just listening. We're watching. And they're saying to him, You know, you ought to tell these folks to stop saying this kind of thing. They actually believe you're Messiah. You're going to let them say these things about you? All you would have to do right now is to quiet them down and say, I'm not the one. That's all you need to do. They think you're the one. You're going to let them keep saying it? And Jesus in meekness looks to him and says, or looks to them, And says something similar to what Habakkuk the prophet. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse number 11. Who was talking about if, if, if God's words were not heard through the mouths of his servants. The stones out of the walls would begin to speak his word. Because God's going to be heard. Jesus looks at them and says. Fellas I, I don't know what to tell you. If I hush them up. The announcement that's going to be made today would come from the rocks. This word must be heard because this day, Jesus was clearly and plainly presenting himself as the one who was promised. Jesus, one author said, was identified as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated through his temptation. He was glorified through his miracles. And he was presented officially in his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I'm not going to deny what you say, men. And I'm certainly not going to deny what what they're crying. I'm the one. I've come, and I'm not going to hide it. But what we have is the presentation of the ultimate individual. God the Son, Messiah, the representative of God, promised through the prophets and the poems. And yet he's coming in with humble presentation. Where pride and power could have been absolutely celebrated. Where he could have been inaugurated and crowned and set upon a makeshift throne. He comes in on the back of humility. Not just a humble presentation. We see a broken lamentation. One author says that there's a place. And, and having gone to Israel. Let me, just, let me just tell you. I know that there's some fear about traveling over there listen it's always been uh dangerous over there you know it's it's whatever danger it is always been it's always going to be i heard one guy say that that the most dangerous thing you'll do between here and jerusalem is fly into new york okay and then once you get out of new york it's all downhill from there okay chad has talked about taking a trip and leading a trip over to israel and let me just tell you if that happens Take advantage of that. If you're physically able, 
do what you can and go because there's just not quite anything like being able to see the landscape. The buildings, they've been built up over 2,000 years. So we'd have to dig way down to get to the street level that Jesus walked on. But the landscape, the, the way in is just breathtaking. And being there and, and, and being surrounded by the culture, it's overwhelming at times. And I can remember as we were driving in, we would take a turn and you could see the city as we were going up and down. You could see the city just up, and then we'd go down. And then we'd come around another corner, and you see a little bit, and we'd go down. See a little bit more, and we'd go down. But there was a place, and the tour guide even said, okay, if, if everybody could just focus their attention right out the, the, the le- straight and toward the left, you're going to want to see this. And we did. We rounded that corner and we come up over. And, and, and it, was, it was better than us driving back from Dallas those many times and crossing that threshold and seeing Atlanta just spread out in front of you and just go home, even though we had a couple hours to go. It was better than that. We come around the corner and up the hill. Yes, what sparkled first was the dome of the rock, which we know that's not what they were seeing and and that's not the God that we worship, but we came over and and just the the city of Jerusalem just kind of just starts spreading out through the windshield. And you're just like, wow, we're here. This is where it all happened. It was amazing. I mean, your heart's pounding. It's like, I can't believe this. Imagine Jesus on the donkey, rounding a similar road in his entire viewpoint, be the city and the millions of his people all over the countryside. The city that was the representative of the whole nation, the place that has been used as a place card for everything that's going to happen in Israel. Jesus sees this city and he begins to weep. Now what's interesting about the fact that he begins to weep over the city in verse number 41. This is a different word used here than used at the graveside of Lazarus. When Jesus came to the graveside of Lazarus and began to weep over the death of his friend, the word that's used there is simply to cry. There were others that were of the profession of mourning that were weeping and wailing and crying out with a loud voice because they were paid to do that at a funeral. People would pay individuals to cry over their beloved. That's not what Jesus did in that scene. Jesus went and stood with Mary within the vicinity of Martha and he began to hurt with her. That's a side little sermon that says you go through difficulty, you go through things that break your heart. You know what also happens? God's heart too is broken. Because of the situation that he never intended in his good creation. But his heart breaks because of you. His beloved. That's not the word that's used here. What's used here is the same word that's used of the mourners. 
What happens when Jesus begins to crest this hill is not some tender tears that are coming down his eyes, not some, you know, a a, a little bit of lip quivering over his fondness over the city and his disappointment. No, this word means he begins to sob uncontrollably, weeping and wailing over the city. What is it that he's saying? He's saying, if you'd only known who was coming, if you'd have only known what was here, you could have avoided what is coming. If you would have just turned your heart to me, if you would have been willing to just humbly submit to me, if you would have just read your Old Testament, you would have seen the things I've said, watched the things I've done. You could have been blessed. This could have been a joyful thing, but you wouldn't. John the Apostle said in chapter number 1 the light shined in darkness but the darkness just didn't get it in chapter 1 verse number 11 it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him yeah there were many who were following praising and glorifying in him but you just give it a few days and that'll be the same crowd that's crying out you know the two words crucify him jesus when he could have rounded that corner and to begin pronouncing judgment as the judge a righteous judge on their sin and their rejection. When he could have been saying things that would have been detrimental to the nth degree for them, he did not. He expressed brokenness. He labored over the love that he had that was being rejected and trampled upon. While the lambs were being chosen by the families in the city, picking through the ones that were for sale. Uh, What about that one? How, How about that one for us to sacrifice? While they were purchasing and taking and inspecting and beginning to process of thinking about sacrificing all of these 275,000 plus lambs, they had no idea that the Lamb of God was riding right into the city. To do for them what none of these little animals had ever been able to do or would ever do coming into the city to deal once and for all with their sin and to make a way for them to be cleansed and not just covered. This humble presentation led to a broken lamentation over my people. Which then led to a bold demonstration. Where he walks into the temple. And and, and for most Bible scholars we believe that this is the second time that Jesus has come into the temple. John would record the first cleansing where he tied a whip together and drove out the the money changers. We, We think that was probably early on in his public ministry in Jerusalem. They didn't learn the lesson. Those that were in charge, those that were, that were responsible for the temple worship didn't learn. Because over just a, a, a little bit around three years, the same bazaar was happening inside the temple. 
And as Jesus walks in as the clearly presented Messiah, knowing for what he had come, he walks into the temple and he looks around. And I believe in true, pure, unsinful anger. He says, no, sir. Scripture says that again, he begins to drive out those who bought and sold. The buying and the selling was not the problem. And no one was, it wasn't going to be where everyone could bring their own animal to the feast. Many of them were were very poor and could only bring exactly what was needed. So most would have to purchase livestock there. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, is that that show, that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, harvest bazaar type thing was in the place that was designed and set aside for the worship of God. It wasn't that buying and selling was wrong, although I'm sure there were some who were selling overpriced animals because the people had no choice but to buy what was available. But the fact that they had turned the house of worship into a place for commerce Jesus says, I'll have none of this. And with authority that was his, he began to turn over the tables. He began to drive out those. And then he stood. He he stood around like, anybody going to come back and challenge me? You all know that my father's house is to be a house of prayer. Nobody's going to argue with me. Any of you authorities want to come in here and pull one of the scrolls and show me how this is what's supposed to be done in here? No, you're not. This is going to be a place for worship. And the people were like, I told y'all we shouldn't be in here. No, I ain't going back in there. Not unless I'm going to pray. But the religious authorities... Not the level of the Pharisees. Those are the ones he's been dealing with out in the field. Those were your, your blue collar, your, 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 uh, your working class guys, your, your middle class folks. Those guys were the ones he was dealing with out in the field. Now he's in Jerusalem. Now he's in the temple. And he's in the presence of the chief priests, verse 47. And the scribes. And the principled men. These are the Sanhedrin. These are the people that are in bed with Rome. These are the folks that were hearing about what Jesus was doing out in the field. But now they're seeing for themselves. And they don't like what they're seeing and hearing. Well, yeah, yeah, you can challenge those underling Pharisees out there. But you're not going to come into our temple and rub our nose in what you're doing. And they began to seek to destroy him. Why? Because Jesus refused to turn a blind eye to the corruption of those who were in charge. See, we watch this mighty king, this ultimate king, ride into town humbly, meekly. We see this Righteous judge, turn the corner and see the city, but instead of pronouncing judgment, his heart breaks. But that turns quickly to this one who had real authority say, this is not going to be the way of my people where we are to worship. 
I think what we're seeing here is just simply this. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you your king, Messiah, the one who is promised. The one you can follow, the one by faith you can trust in, if you will. But what we're going to discover is that it all goes sour from here. I know we could have done some gymnastics to make it happen where we were doing all these things through the Easter season, but we didn't. And this is why we're here right now. Remembering a triumphal entry that didn't look a whole lot like triumph and that wouldn't look a whole lot like triumph until Resurrection Day. But we see our one coming into town to mixed responses, but to a clear presentation. Say, okay, what do we do with this? Well, I think we're able to follow his example. I think we're able to look at what Jesus did. And I think our first response should be faith in him. I'm to be in the crowd that is crying out, blessed is he. He came in humbly this time. He, he, he came in under scrutiny. He came in and was rejected. He was placed up on the tree. He was buried and rose again. My same king, he's coming back. I think that's the response that Luke is trying to build us to. This one, he's it. He's the one to follow. He's the one to trust. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, that's your response. That should be your return that he's Messiah. And I'm putting my trust in him. But if you know Jesus is Messiah, and by the way, I forgot to ask you early on today. Are you a follower of Jesus today? Okay. Many of you are. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I, I think what we do is we look to this scripture and we say, okay, Yes, I have faith in him. Is there something that I can walk away with him? And I think it is. I think today we have a clear opportunity to follow the example of our Lord. We've got three scenes. I think we've got three responses. Let me give you the first one. The first one is, is that we honor our Savior the most through meekness and humility, never through pride and power. Now, I'm just going to be blunt. As Americans, we think ourselves the power of the world. And you know, maybe we do have more bullets than other nations. I'm not interested in finding that fact out. That, that, would be, that would not be a profitable thing to find out. But as Americans, we already have a sense of national pride. That's why people around the world, when we go visit them, they pick us out. I mean, those, those are the arrogant yanks. That's what they say. When we get over there, yeah, huh, you know an American when you see them because they're happy to let everybody know they're here. We do that. It's a part of our national identity, which is all well and fine. It just doesn't work out with our ultimate identity. You see, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you'll never follow Jesus with a puffed out chest. Because that's not how he rolls. He, if anybody could walk around and demand 
immediate respect. It'd be our Lord. And you know what he was constantly doing? Bending the knee in meekness and humility in order to serve the least, the most broken, the most despised. He was full of grace and truth. You'll never read a passage in the New Testament where Jesus kicks in the saloon doors and steps in like John Wayne. Although we, we get it. That just doesn't translate well as a follower of Jesus. In fact, it translates the opposite. I'll tell you another thing. We've, we've got it a part of our national identity. I'll tell you a lot of things that, that y'all have in common with me. It's a part of our southern heritage. You, you know, you, you can take the boy off the farm. It's hard to take the redneck out of the boy. You know? Jesus called us to be followers of his. And that can have a nice southern draw to it. But it's not going to come with the, the machismo the macho attitude that I struggle with. American, Southern, married up. I mean, I got a lot to be proud of. Right? We honor Jesus most when we take what's been given to us and we present him through the lens of humility and meekness. We can follow his example in another way. Number two. There are lost people around us that are doing lost things all over the world. They, they have no choice but to do lost things. This is what they do. All, all kinds of weird lost things happening. That can either bring out the judgment in us, which it often does, or it could lead us to more compassionate tears. When was the last time that we truly were broken over the lostness of the world instead of presenting ourselves on the throne of judgment that doesn't belong to us? You see, we represent Jesus the most when those he died to save that have yet to come to know him break our heart. Bring us to tears instead of judgment. Judgment will never work, y'all. It'll just drive the nail in harder. And in the last scene, we can follow his example when we address corruption and sin in the body with boldness and love. You see, a lot of times we're taking the judgment to the world. The world doesn't have any choice but to do lost things because they're lost. And then we turn a blind eye, a deaf ear to sin in the body. We turn, a, we turn our back on things that are corrupt in the church because we don't want to offend anyone. Look, we need to be offended. We need to be offended by our own brokenness. We need to be offended by our sin. And sometimes that's going to require you to come tell me about something that I'm not yet offended by. But I need to be. 
And that needs to be done with boldness. Yes, love, not, look, I'm not saying come to the house, kick over my coffee table. I'm saying knock over the door, let's talk about it, and if I'm just a bullhead, then kick over my coffee table. But the bottom line is, look, we've got to be bold enough to trust that even if I make you mad coming and saying, listen, we need to talk about this. This ain't okay. How, how, how you're treating your spouse, that's not okay. Look, what, what, what you're doing and posting, that's, look, that reflects terribly on the Savior. Well, so you think you're perfect? I know I'm not perfect. Well, let's talk about me in a minute and, and I'll listen. But right now we need to talk about this. We need to address corruption in the body with brothers and sisters with bold love. We follow our Savior doing it. He, he didn't back down. He didn't go, oh, well, that, no. He said, no, no, that's not the way the body's supposed to work. We're going to change some things. You're not Jesus and neither am I. So we have to do it with a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of love. But I think we can exercise humility when we want to demonstrate power. I think we embrace brokenness when we want to judge. And I think we follow our Savior when we boldly confront, when we want to just let it go. At the end of the day, we confess Him as Lord. We confess Him as Savior. And as we challenged our students, our challenge and our prayer is that we will follow hard after Jesus and we will let His words guide and direct our future. And we have an opportunity to do that today with what we've learned. Let's stand together and we'll pray. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, we've got folks coming to, to my right, to your left. While we're praying, they're, they're there ready for you. They'd love to be able to pray with you. You got a need going on in your life, you can just kind of slip over there and they'd be happy to, to take you by the hand, just pray with you. If you need to go out into one of the other rooms and just sort of share for a while, that's always available. Bottom line is this do business with God right where you're standing. What's He said to you today? You do that. And you'll be blessed by it. It won't be easy, but it will be obedient. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, you don't have to leave without Him. You can know Him today, but you'll only know Him by faith. And you'll only know Him as you come just like you are. Broken and in need. That's how He'll take you. And He'll begin to transform you for His glory. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We ask that you'll help us today to not only hear and to celebrate along with the many that were able to do it live some 2,000 years ago. But as we look at our Savior, as we recommit ourselves to Him in faith, saying, yes, He's the one. He's Messiah. Presented clearly, but presented humbly. I pray that you will give us the courage to watch His example and then put those things to practice for your glory. God, I ask that you'll use us this week. I pray that you will uh, give us opportunities to share the gospel. At least be able to share why we are the way we are. I pray that you will uh, use us for your purpose and the building of your kingdom. God, our desire is that Jesus would come back and that he would come quickly. But until he comes, may we be faithful. May we be accurate reflections of what you've done in us. We love you. We thank you. For some Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said.